death up here, ain't it? As subtle as I am. All right, it's nice to see you guys. We're continuing in our series in the Gospel of Mark, and we're looking uh, at who Jesus is, and the song that the band just sang, I Believe in Jesus, that's exactly why we're here this morning, that we believe in Jesus, that we believe that God loved the world so much that he sent his only son, uh, that his son came to show us how to live, his son came then to die on a cross, and then he rose again, and we like to call ourselves resurrection people because we believe without a shadow of a doubt, um, we believe with our whole heart and our whole life that God uh, raised Jesus from the grave and that everything in the Bible is true. If the resurrection is true, then everything else has to be true, and we stand on the resurrection, and so when I have a really bad day, uh, when I have doubts in my life, when, the thing that I go back to is what do I know for sure? And I know that Christ rose from the grave. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in Jesus. And so we want to talk about Jesus. Uh, we, we call ourselves followers of Jesus, and, and it seems to me that if we're a follower of Jesus, we should want to know everything that we possibly can about him. We want to get to know him as much as we possibly can. And so we are studying one of the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Peter, the Apostle Peter, an eyewitness of everything that happened, uh, is the primary source for Mark. Mark got his information from Peter. And so when we're reading the Gospel of Mark, we're getting the eyewitness account of the Apostle Peter. And, and as you look at these Gospels, one of the things that makes it really unique is that, that Peter doesn't try to make himself look particularly good in the Gospel of Mark. He just tells the truth. And if I were creating a myth, if I were trying to write something that I wanted people to believe that wasn't really true, I think I would be tempted to make myself look a little better than Peter did. And so as we look at this this morning, P Peter's gonna be central uh, in part of this story, and, and I want you to pay attention to the fact that, that part of the validation of the scripture is that it's so honest and so truthful, so authentic. So we're going to look at uh, Mark, the eighth chapter. But before we do, um, I was thinking this week, I, I, read a, I read an article about some research that was done at Washington State University. And, and it was fascinating because they decided to study whether talking on a cell phone was a, a distraction to people. Duh, right? <laughs> Seriously. But uh, so here's what they did. They, they got all of these, they, they found a busy street, lots of people walking on the sidewalk, and they put a clown uh, on a unicycle on the sidewalk, all right? That's the actual guy uh, that was in this study. And uh, they put a clown on a unicycle, and he had him, they had him riding around on the sidewalk, and three out of four people who were on their cell phones didn't see him. And when the researchers came back and said, did you see the the clown on the unicycle? And, no, there's no clown on a unicycle. And they would say, oh no, he's right there. They were stunned because they were seeing, they were walking, but they really weren't seeing. They, they really didn't notice what was going on around them because they were so fixated. They were so distracted uh, by their cell phones. Aren't you glad they weren't driving? But they, were, but they missed the picture. And one of the things that we're gonna look at this morning is how often in our lives, we think we're seeing everything. We, we think we're seeing really clearly, but we're so distracted in our lives. 
that we're missing what's going on around us. So with that in mind, let's look at Mark 8. And Mark 8, um, the part, part that we're going to look at this morning starts in verse 22. And we're not going to read this whole account, but it, it begins with Jesus and his disciples in the crowd get to a town called Bethsaida. Bethsaida. And, in, and in Bethsaida, uh, they come across a man who was blind. And it says this, that some people brought him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Now, I want to just bring this out because... Listen to what Mark teaches us, that some people brought a blind friend, somebody they loved, to Jesus, and they begged Jesus to touch him. The the blind man didn't find his way to Jesus, but some friends who really cared about him, who knew that he couldn't see, they cared enough about him to come to Jesus, and they didn't just say, Jesus, we had this great idea this morning. We were having coffee, and we thought, hey, why don't we take our buddy? But they came to Jesus. They planned this out. They came to Jesus, and they begged him to do something. I don't know about you, but I think there's probably people in, in around me that I need to bring introduced to Jesus and beg Jesus to touch them to do something for him. Well, Jesus, it says, touched this man. And uh, he, in fact, he spit, this is not hygienic, but he spit on his eyes and he laid hands on him. And then he asked him a really interesting question. He says, do you see anything? And the man said, well, yeah, I kind of do. I see people, but they're like trees walking. And so Jesus lays his hands on him again and says, now, and, and at the second time, he could see perfectly, but it's fascinating because every other gospel miracle that you read about, it just seems easier than this, right? I mean, it seems like there's a leper, Jesus touches him, he's cleansed, everything's good. There's a guy that can't walk, Jesus touches him, he, he's healed, he can walk, blind guy, all of those things happen. And here we have the only story in the gospel where it takes two times to touch him. It takes two times to heal him. Pretty powerful picture that Jesus is creating for us. And, and I believe that, that, uh, that Mark didn't put this in here just so we would see a unique story, but he put this in here as, as an account of one of the miracles of Jesus, but also a parable for the rest of us. That, that Jesus touched him and he said, I see people like trees walking. Now here's the honest truth that if I'd have been the blind man that day, I don't know if I might have said to Jesus, yeah, I can see better. This is awesome. Thank you. Right? I don't want to bother you anymore. I'm good. I don't want to admit that it didn't work. That's kind of embarrassing. I don't want you to be angry at me. What's your response going to be if, if I don't have the right answer? Although, you know, I might have just walked away seeing people like trees walking because of my personality. This guy was so desperate. He had been blind that he said, no, I can't completely see yet. And I think there are points in our lives when we realize that we aren't seeing clearly, that we we need to be honest enough to say, you know what, I need to see better. I don't think I'm seeing everything clearly enough. And so here's this man, he says, I I, I see people, but they're like trees walking. Jesus touches them again and, and he's healed. And then Mark takes us on this little journey. We go from this place in Bethsaida and we travel up to a place called Caesarea Philippi. 
And Jesus takes his disciples and all of the, this crowd of people that follows him and they go from this place called Bethsaida to uh, Caesarea Philippi. Um, today, if you were to try to drive this on modern roads in a car, it's a pretty good hike. It would probably still take you about an hour to two hours to get from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is placed, it's uphill and it's placed at the mouth of the Jordan River um, at the foot of Mount Hermon, uh, which is a pretty famous place in Israel. And that's where Jesus took his disciples. Now, the reason that Caesarea Philippi is important is because of the Philip, who was the, uh, one of the Herods, had, had uh, rebuilt this town. And, and actually, Caesarea Philippi was a, uh, had a series of towns uh, around it and he had rebuilt it and named it after the Caesar. And because there was another Caesarea near the Mediterranean, he called it Caesarea Philippi, so nobody would get it confused, and he built a temple to Caesar there. So it was a place that people would go, and they would acknowledge Caesar as Lord. And it's at this place that Jesus takes his disciples to make one of his most profound statements. We pick up the story in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, as they traveled, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? A little pop quiz. We're walking along, the disciples, the crowd's following, and Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist... And others say Elijah, one of the Old Testament promise, prophets, and, and others say one of the other prophets. So, so listen to this, Jesus, they're walking along, and Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Let's talk about this. What's, what's being said out there? And, and, his, and his disciples say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, that come back. John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod the Great, and, and now they're saying he's, he, he's come back, and, and you're John the Baptist, the, the last of the great prophets. And, and others say you're Elijah, arguably one of the greatest of all of the prophets. And then others say, well, we're not quite sure which prophet, but he's one of, of the prophets. And so there's this conjecture, but think about what they're saying, that they're saying that who they think Jesus is is one of the great prophets. Prophets stirred up trouble. Prophets spoke for God. Uh, prophets weren't meek and timid, but they brought God's message to people. They called the people of Israel to repentance. They called the people of Israel to leave their, their sin, to leave all of their things that they were doing and to follow God again. They were strong personalities and they're saying, that's who people think that you are, one of the prophets. Okay, interesting, their picture of who Jesus is, right? We don't always have that picture in our minds. So Jesus then asks the big question. In verse 29, he asks them, but who do you say that I am? They say I'm one of the prophets. What do you guys think? Who, who do you say that I am? This is the moment. I, I, want you, I want to know what you think. You've been with me now all this time. You've seen all the things. You've heard everything. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, Peter answered him and said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, uh, the one that God was, had promised to send to save his people, to take us out of captivity. That's who you are. 
Good answer, Peter. Nice job. The problem that Peter has is that he sees Jesus like trees walking. He doesn't see him clearly yet. He says, you are the Christ. And Matthew, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, the, he actually adds, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's who you are. That's a great answer. But sometimes having the right answer isn't enough in our lives, is it? Sometimes we have to live with that answer. Sometimes that answer has to become part of who we are. It has to become part of our lives. And, and so here's what happens. Peter got the right answer. He and the other disciples knew Jesus was the Christ, the, the promised Messiah. They simply didn't know what the Messiah looked like. They had an image, an idea, and they were so distracted by what they were thinking, what they were expecting, that they missed what the Messiah really looked like. And here's what happens in verse 31. And he began to teach them, referring to Jesus, that the Son of Man, that's a name that he referred to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And look at verse 32, and he said this plainly. He said this plainly. He he didn't try to hide it. He didn't try to mince words. He said, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. And then he said, this is what the Christ looks like that he'll be betrayed and he'll be beaten. He'll be arrested by the religious leaders. He'll be crucified and then he'll rise again. That's what the Messiah looks like. And what's interesting is that Peter then took him aside and began to rebuke him. Rebuke is another great Bible word that means he criticized Jesus. He He told Jesus, stop that. That's ridiculous. That'll never happen. That's not how this is going to work. That's not what the Messiah is going to be like. Peter pulls Jesus aside and starts criticizing him, starts telling him that he's wrong. Uh, He starts scolding Jesus. It's really obvious that Peter isn't clear about who Jesus is, or I think he would be ducking lightning bolts right then, right? I mean, if you really knew that Jesus was a Messiah, you wouldn't say that but he had a wrong picture of who the Messiah was. He thought the Messiah was gonna sweep in and wipe out the Romans and free Israel and set up his reign and Israel would be on top again and God would reign and all of their problems would be dissolved. Everything would be perfect and that's what it looked like and Jesus said, here's what it's gonna look like. I came to give my life not just for you but for everyone. I came to be a sacrifice for everyone. That's what the Messiah looks like. That's who the Christ is. The Christ is a sacrifice. The Christ gives himself for others. And Peter says, no, I'm not having any of this, Jesus. Here's the thing. Let's just make this practical for us this morning, all right? We love this whole Jesus idea, right? I mean, we love the idea that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Christ, he's awesome. Look what he did for this blind guy. Think about the story of the leper, all of those awesome things. Think about the resurrection and everything. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says, yeah, but you know what? What it means, what it really looks like to follow me is that I'm going to be betrayed and I'm gonna suffer and I'm gonna die and then I'm gonna rise again and I want you to be part of that. I want you to experience that with me. I want you to come along with me. And then, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute, Jesus. That I didn't sign up for that part. I love the miracles, though. Those are awesome. Can we just stick with the fun stuff? Can we stick with the easy stuff? Can we stick with the stuff that, that you win? 
and maybe just skip the rest of that hard stuff. Peter and the disciples wanted to skip all of the life. They wanted to skip all the hard stuff and just get to the Messiah, get to the end. And Jesus said, that's not how my kingdom works. And he spoke plainly to them. In verse 33, it says, he turned, turn, but turning to the, his disciples, uh, turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said this, get behind me, Satan. Now, that's pretty strong rebuke too, right? For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You're so distracted. You're not seeing what's really happening. In verse 34, he says this, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, now I want you to picture this just for a second. Jesus now calls the crowd around with his disciples and he's going to define what a disciple is. He's gonna define what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I just didn't want you to miss that, okay? I really do love you guys, you're awesome. If anyone would come after me, and the language in this is really beautiful because it's the language of a lover chasing the one that he or she loves. If anyone would come after me, it's the great old movies where the hero goes after the heroine and finds her and rescues, you know, all that. This is, this is the language that Jesus is using. If you want to follow me like a lover, if you want to follow me, here's what you do. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoops. I'll just read it again make sure I had it right. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 35 says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Listen to those words again. Jesus said, This is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means to be my follower. The very first thing it means is that we deny ourselves. That we say it's, no long, it's not about me anymore. That I've come under new ownership. That Jesus, I belong to you. That you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You're the creator of the universe. And I belong to you. I give my life to you. It belongs to you now. And this idea of denying ourselves is a picture of coming under new ownership. That I used to run my life the way I saw best, the way I thought, and now I live my life for Jesus. I live my life the way he has called me to live my life. That's what it looks like to deny ourselves. Uh, it's why we use a verse a lot here in Galatians 2.20 that says, for I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith through Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. And I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means that I've been crucified with Christ and, and it's not my life anymore, but my life belongs to him. I'm his. Whatever he wants to do with it, whatever he calls me to, that's what it means to be a disciple. And that's why it's so hard, right? I think often, you know, if it was easy, a lot more people would be doing it, right? But it means we deny ourselves. It means we come under new ownership. It means we live our lives for him. We've been crucified with Christ. And the second thing that he says is to take up your cross. 
you know, they, they're, they're figuring out. Jesus is just now starting to tell them. In fact, this Mark 8 is sort of the pivotal spot. It's the turning point in the Gospel of Mark. And now everything is going to start moving toward the cross and, and the resurrection. Uh, so he's starting to tell them about what's happening. But here he says that you come under new ownership, you deny yourself, and, and then you take up your cross. And if you were to think about that, if you were living in the first century, this is what it meant. It means that I, I take up my cross to totally identify with Jesus in his life, in his death, in his humiliation. Because crucifixion was the most painful, the most humiliating, um, the most frightening form of execution that the Romans had ever come up with. In fact, they, they didn't invent it, the Persians invented it, they just perfected it. And he's saying, here's what it means, deny yourself and take up your cross, completely identify with me, that you're a Christ person, that you follow me first and foremost in your life, that your life is built around who I am and what I've called you to and what I've done in your life. So then he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and now follow me. Now stay close to me. A follower of a rabbi, a follower of a great teacher would get as close to the teacher as they possibly could. They would walk as close as they could so they could hear everything, every whisper, every sigh, everything that he had to say. I want you to get as close to me as you possibly can so that you don't miss anything. I want you to follow me. And here's the, here's the, the thing about it, and we talk about this again, that we don't always know where we're going, but we know exactly who we're following. Right? It's not always about knowing where I'm going, it's, but it is always about knowing who I'm following. I'm following Jesus. And so here's what he says. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's what it looks like to be my disciple. Now, in an article in the Wall Street Journal, the Wall Street Journal asks this question, why work out when you can buy the best clothes and look like you did? <laughs> the article explores a growing trend in the athletic apparel market. People are buying sports clothing without actually practicing the sport. The article notes that the U.S. athletic apparel market will increase by nearly 50% to more than $100 billion a year by 2020 driven in large part by consumers snapping up stretchy tees and leggings that will never see the fluorescent lights of a gym. <coughs> For instance, sale of yoga apparel increased by 45%, but yoga participation grew by less than 5%. That's why I don't go, because I don't have the uniform. <laughs> the trend isn't limited to yoga. Outdoor and camping retail, retailers have debuted new lines of hiking boots and flannel shirts for people who probably have no intention of actually hiking and camping. Retailers are also rolling out jogging pants and preppy $90 men's running shorts for men who may never jog. The article quoted one buyer of athletic apparel who likes to wear yoga pants around town but who seldom has time to work out. She said, when, I put, when you put on your yoga or your workout apparel, you think, huh, Maybe I should think about working out today. And then as uh, Winston Churchill would say, whenever I think about exercise, I lay down till I get over it. <laughs> would you rather, here's the question. Would you rather look like a disciple 
a follower of Jesus than actually be a disciple, a follower of Jesus? Have we settled to saying, I'm okay with looking like a disciple? I'm okay looking like a follower, but I don't really want to, I don't want to sweat. I, I don't really want to be a follower. I don't really want all of that hard stuff. But if I could just get the uniform, you know, if I could just look like a follower of Jesus, then that's enough for me. And here's what Jesus is trying to say. That's not discipleship. That's not what it looks like. That's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But to be a follower of Jesus, we deny ourselves. We take up our cross and we follow him. And Jesus taught us this and he showed us this when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed to the Father. He said, Father, if there's any way to, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And he said, but not my will, but thy will be done. Not about what I want, but Father, it's about what you want. And all Jesus is saying is, I want you to live the way I did. I want you to live that life. I want you to live my life, a life that's submitted to the will of the Father, a life that says, not my will be done, but your will be done. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to be his disciple. But sometimes I think we get so distracted Sometimes we get so caught up that we forget. And that's why he says in verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. That the very thing that we're thinking we're trying to protect, the very life that we think that we're trying to hold on to, Jesus says that we're gonna lose that life. What really matters is when we give our lives to Jesus, that's when we gain real life. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So what does it look like? How do I know that I, if I give my life completely to Jesus, if I come under new ownership, if I get real life, first of all, that's not how it works. What we do is we trust Jesus. We give ourselves to him. We deny ourselves because that's what it takes to be his disciples. And we also have hope. We have hope because of who Jesus is. So I want you to think about this because I have some life passages that I go to at least monthly that I go back to that remind me of who Christ is and, and who I am. And one of my life passages is in Philippians, the second chapter, and it's verses five through 11. And it talks about Jesus. It says, have this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus who though he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be held onto, grasped, but he emptied himself. And being found in the form of a servant, he, became obe- he, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. And then Paul says, even death on a cross, not just death, but death on a cross, the humiliating suffering that Christ went through but that's the picture of what it means. That's what picture of what Jesus did. But then Paul says this in verse nine. He said, therefore, therefore is a big word in the Bible, right? Because it always means because of what's just happened, because of what you've just read, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every tongue the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's who Jesus is. Jesus humbled himself. He denied himself. He gave up his life. 
on a cross. He didn't try to exalt himself. He didn't try to make himself popular. He didn't try to make himself big. He didn't try to make himself famous. He gave himself up for us. And then it says, therefore, because of what Jesus did, God lifted his name up. God exalted him. God did all of that. Jesus didn't have to do that. So here's, here's what I want to leave you with this morning. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Awesome. And, and Romans 8.1 says, For those who are in Christ, there's no condemnation. The Bible talks a, a lot about us being in Christ. So I want to ask you a question this morning. If you're in Christ, and Christ has been exalted to the highest place, the highest place possible, there's no promotion that can get higher. There's no election that can make you higher. There's nothing that can make you higher than Jesus. If he's been elevated to that place and you're in Christ, where are you? You see, we don't have to try to save ourselves. We don't have to try to save our lives. We don't try to have to promote ourselves. We don't have to try to protect ourselves because Jesus has already done that through the cross and his resurrection. He says, if you're in me, you're as high as you can get. You have the place that you already set for you for eternity. You have that. What do you have to prove? What do you have to protect? What is there to hold on to? I've given you all of that, but what you are called to do, what you need to do is deny yourself, take up your cross, and be my follower. So the question is this morning, is when you look at Jesus, what do you see? And then when you look at your own heart, your own life, do you see somebody who likes to wear the uniform of a disciple or do you see somebody who's following Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word and thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, uh, we acknowledge this morning that this isn't easy stuff, but it's it's real, and it's important for us. It's how we live our lives, Lord, and, and it's what it means to be your follower, and so we want to take it seriously, and yet, Lord, we recognize that without you, we can't do this. So, Lord, please give us the strength and the courage to be your followers this morning. Help us to see you clearly for who you really are. And then, Lord, help us to see ourselves, and, Lord, to determine in our hearts that we're going to follow you. And Lord, we'll be careful to give you the praise and all of the honor and all the glory goes to you in Jesus' name. Amen.